Hi, everyone. This is Trish Kendall, your host for the Choose and Become interview series. I am excited for today's episode because I am reconnecting with somebody who is near and dear to my business partner and my friend, Jenny Geis. I get the privilege of interviewing Christina Russell today. Christina, will you just say hi really quick? Hi, everyone. I'm so honored to be here. What an exciting thing. Well, and then, and Christine and I are going to get right into it. But for those of you who don't follow the interview series, let me just take a step back before we move forward, just to give a little bit of context to this. I made five critical choices on my journey to enduring success from really the pit of despair to the peak of success. And those five critical choices are important because that's what I use as the framework for this interview. So first I picked up the phone, which for me was making a first choice. The second choice I made was to commit to a two-way agreement. The third choice was to build trust, first in myself and then to inspire the trust of others. The fourth choice I made was to create community and belonging. And the fifth choice, my most important choice, was to finally embrace my boundless capacity to give love and to receive love. Now, with just that as a little bit of background, I get to, in this interview series, interview people I admire, Christina, <laughs> such that I can get her lessons and experiences and wisdom and advice and her voice as I double down on this mission to help others believe and know that they can create enduring success in their lives. So, Christina, I'm going to stop there and just say, will you share with the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. You know, it's it's so funny, that question of a little bit about yourself, because always we start with our careers. So I'll start instead with my family and myself. But I, I live in Denver, yeah. Colorado. I haven't lived here my whole life. I've lived a lot of different places, but I've always prioritized sunshine. So I grew up in Florida, lived in Santa Fe for 12 years, had the privilege of living in Paris for a year. Um, and then uh, wow. Waco, Texas, before Waco, Texas was cool. And then ultimately landed here in Denver, just chasing career in most cases. Um, I have a, a husband of, gosh, almost 26 years and an eight-year-old daughter, and I've lived most of my career in franchising, but I got there through a, a really kind of, a, I guess, a, a path that's common in franchising, but not that common in most careers to make a big leap. Um, so I know a lot about some of the, the big changes and jumps that you've asked me to talk about today, Trish, just because I've had to do so many of them to get where I am today. And so first of all, I didn't know that you lived in Paris for a year. I did. Yeah. I uh, actually chased a boyfriend to Paris, which is one of those very <laughs> impulsive things we do when we're young. So in my early 20s, I, uh, I had almost minored in French in college, but what are you going to do with French? And I had a boyfriend who was going to, <laughs> right. Paris. Go to Paris for a year. So I said, sure, why not? And at the time I was working as a freelance writer and could live anywhere I wanted. So I, uh, well, I could starve anywhere I wanted. Let's put it that way. So I made ends meet yeah. in Paris instead of making the ends meet in, uh, in New Mexico, which was uh, a great experience and uh, one that my mother probably didn't approve of, but actually turned out to be a great thing. <laughs> That's awesome. And it's so great when that happens. And I'm sure there will be a time in which your daughter perhaps says the same thing later down the road. <laughs> so. For sure. Yeah, that's what I've always said is the karma will come back to get me on this and I'll have to be patient with her the way my mom walks with me. <laughs> Some, somehow. Well, and so you brought up Waco. That is actually where we connected. Um, when I came in to, to help uh, Curves and Jenny Craig, you were actually leaving, but you were a leader there in the franchise community and a business leader. And since you have been an incredible business executive, not only creating this um, incredible success for your own professional career, but also helping others, franchisees, create their own success. So I know we'll get into the professional side, but I want to I want to really get from you when I say creating enduring success, enduring success, like what does that mean to you? Yeah. You know, it's it's funny because career for a long time was a really big and important part of it. And and I think, you know, I, I had a lot of blessings when I was young, really great mentors, people that have, you know, influenced me in ways. And one of the things that happened to me when I when I ended up um, in New Mexico, 
I had uh, started a PhD in literature thinking that's what I wanted to do and ended up hating it and had dropped out, really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I actually went out to New Mexico on a rock climbing trip and just fell in love with it after living in Florida my whole life. And what they have in New Mexico is a lot of national laboratories. So places where they employ people um, who are in the sciences. Well, I had also almost minored in physics. I was very indecisive in college. And uh, it was one wow. of those things where it was like, all right, I have writing skills. I have science skills. What can I do with that? And I ended up in a, in a job at the National Laboratory as a science writer. And one of the things that they did there, because it was a large organization, it was at that time managed by the University of California, they put everyone through the old school Franklin Covey um, planner. And so I'm dating myself. So anyway, Oh, oh Christina, I'm with you. <laughs> yes, yes. But it was such an amazing thing. And I think the generations behind it, there's never been anything that's really replaced it since technology became hmm. the norm for organizing your calendar. But the thing that struck me the most about it when I was so young was that they made you write your personal mission statement. You had to write down what you wanted your life to be about. And I guarantee you, anybody who's on this call that's in their 20s, you don't have a clue what your life is actually going to be about, but what it's really doing is helping you wow. to start thinking that way. And so enduring success has always been for me sort of chasing your bliss, sort of following that dream of like, how do I want my life to evolve into change? And in my early stages of that, a lot of it was about trying to achieve stability. So I came from a very poor background, um, grew up in Orlando, Florida. My mom was a single working mom with two small children in the 1970s. So we were you know, sort of the product of the Vietnam War, like so many families back then, where the husbands came home and the marriages fell apart. And uh, she somehow managed as, as a secretary, because that was you know, the path that was available to a lot of women back then, to buy her own home and to set us up in a way that was stable. And to teach us that, like, the way to do this is not to go into debt. So I left with some good lessons, even from my mom, and realized, like, what I need to do is make sure that I always have a stable income. And with so many false starts, like, am I going to major in lit? Am I going to major in physics? Am I going to major in English? Which is what I ended up getting my major in just so I could graduate. It, it was nice to fall into a career that worked. And I probably would have died there, you know, doing what I did because, like, wow, I've achieved it. I got stability except that I was always looking over the horizon of where am I going next? And then meeting my husband, my husband was the one that had the entrepreneurial dream. And we had our little iMac, you know, back in the day, and he got on the iMac and was researching like, what, how do you start a business? Little, the little iMac the or the <laughs> green, you had to pick your color back then. But yeah. It was, a, it was a, something that he discovered. He discovered franchising. And I'm like, I don't know what this is, but he, you know, read about it and, you know, started teaching me about it. And then we went to a site that still exists today. It's still how many people discover a franchise business called Entrepreneur Franchise 500. So Entrepreneur uh, Fran uh, Magazine puts out this list and that's where he found Kirk's. And I told oh him, oh my like, God, check this out. And I told him, you are cuckoo. You are crazy. I am never going to leave my career to do this crazy little, you know, 1200 square foot gym. Like this is bizarre. Cause back in the day, all that, all that existed was golds and these big massive gyms. Valleys was the big brand where you had to pay two grand even to get in the door. And I could not relate to it on any level, but he convinced me to drive up and visit one. Cause this was before it became a phenomenon. And I thought, you know what, this is a concept that makes a difference for people. And franchising seems to be a model that's going to support us. So let's take the risk. Let's do it. Wow. So it became another step in that path of looking at stability, stability, stability. But beyond just the stability, it was really trying to look at things where you could make a difference. And that's what struck me about it was that, you know, here I was, you know, doing great work in the sciences, but was it really impacting people in a very personal way? And what I loved about that first jump into entrepreneurship is the mission. The mission was strengthening women. And it was an incredible mission that thousands and thousands of people resonated with and that was much needed. I mean, we basically invented boutique fitness, what, what exists today with, you know, all the orange theories and the pure bars and the, you know, exponentials and all these things would not exist were it not for the innovation of that brand. And so it was a real privilege to be involved with it. It's it's a beautiful journey, and um, that journey continued then to to lead you to help strengthen women even bigger and more so as you became a 
chief executive of franchise companies. So, I mean, it's an amazing, really an amazing journey that you chose to take that risk. But then because of that risk, you've been able to impact the success of so many others and, and a lot of female, a lot of female driven franchise communities. For sure. Yeah. It's, you know, it's an interesting thing you say that because I never, if, if people who knew me when I was in college were going to do the sort of superlatives things, I would have been least likely to major in business. It just wasn't who I was. But what I discovered in that was that business in a way, like you say, it's a way to make a difference for people. It's a way to influence people and becoming an employer. What a weird feeling to go from, you know, living like my mother did where I was an employee and in that mindset to thinking I'm going to be a business owner and I'm going to employ people. And suddenly you realize that the boss seems like they have it easy, but the boss actually has a ton of responsibility. And that responsibility is, you know, giving paychecks to people who are in the position that my mother was when she was trying to make her ends meet and find her first steps forward and influence her daughters to make good choices. And it was a, a very powerful thing. And then franchising generally what you find in that world, because it is so entrepreneurial and so, so many people have origin stories like mine is that it is a very um, mentor oriented environment. Like people want to help other people. That's what franchising is really all about is helping people find a pathway to getting out of the sort of world of glass ceilings and into something where there is no ceiling. You, you can, you can go as far as you're willing yeah. and able to go with the skill sets that you have. So it, it was something I fell in love with immediately. And I, it, it, uh, I don't know, it just resonated with me. Yeah. All right. Now you, we may already be on to the first choice here. <laughs> so, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep us going formally when I think about, because because this could be connecting, why well, it is connecting. The first critical choice that I made on my journey to enduring success was to pick up the phone when my sister called. Now, those of you that follow me know the backstory to that. The reason I say it is because I think we all make first choices and success begins with making a first choice. Nobody can choose for us. You just shared a huge first choice that you made that has impacted your journey to enduring success. Is there another first choice that you made that when you reflect back, it, this really impacted where I'm at today? Yeah, I think it, it, when you asked me to kind of think about that question in preparation for this, I, I think back to so many choices I made that were pivotal. There, there's an old movie called Sliding Doors that had Gwyneth Paltrow in it. I love that movie because it's a movie where it talks about that, that, that every path that you choose to take is going to have a different outcome, good, bad, or otherwise. And I've had so many moments where I thought, should I really do that? But I think the one that really made the difference getting me into executive leadership, opening up the door to become the CEO of companies as I have, was making the choice as a quote unquote older person to go back and get my MBA. So I, I was very successful as a franchisee of Curves um, within my first year. My husband and I won the Franchisee of the Year Award, and it was so unexpected. We weren't even there to receive it, so we didn't know we were getting it, and we missed the banquet. We, we just didn't end up attending this banquet and received this award in, in absentia. But after receiving that award, they invited a lot of franchisees that were very successful, but I was on the list, I think, because of that into a mentoring program where you could mentor other owners. And that's what made me start thinking about not just helping the women that were in my weight loss facility to lose weight, but really thinking about helping um, other business owners to be successful as I have, because mm -hmm. not everyone you know, was successful overnight. It, it took some mentoring to get there. But doing that is what made me fall in love with the real business side of business. And I ended up very quickly going to teach leadership, leadership classes at our training programs. At that time, Curves was training, oh gosh, 700 women a month. It was crazy. Wow. And I say women, mostly women. There were a handful of guys that were involved, like my husband, but mostly yeah. women. And uh, after doing the, uh, the leadership training for them, it was like, wow, you know, I really love doing this. How can I do more? And so I grew, I became an area director and ran um, the state of Florida, which had over 300 locations at the time. So bigger than some of the companies that I've run. And uh, it just made me fall in love with it. And I thought, if I'm going to progress in this, I need hmm. the actual business acumen. I'm going to have to go back and do this. And by this time I was, gosh, I was 37, 38 years old. 
And you feel like you're old at that time to go back to college. And I had a lot of voices in my head saying, you're too old. You're going to be in there. You're going to be like the old woman in the room. But I just decided to make the leap and go back and get my MBA. And making that leap put me on the radar of Gary Haven, the founder of Curves, and made him consider me as the vice president. And it took a while to get there. But uh, I ended up finishing my MBA and uh, uh, it was a huge risk. It was a very expensive risk. It was one that uh, was not comfortable for us at that time. It was, you may remember 2008, 2009 was the recession. Oh, right. Not a great time economically. And it was one where the risk really did pay off. And I think that choice is what opened up the pathway for me to run the companies that I've run. And it allowed me to take the corner office at Camp Bow Wow, which was my first corner office. Yes. It, uh, we, I was there for about four years, and then that company sold from a, a, a publicly held company to Mars, which is a privately held company. A lot of people don't realize Mars. You think of it as candy, but they're actually more Yeah, candy. right. Because I didn't, I should have connected those dots, but I didn't connect the dots that it was Mars that acquired Camp Bow Wow. Wow. Yep, yep. They're a big acquirer of things in the pet space. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it opened up the door to take on Pure Bar and helped um, Pure Bar exit and sell to Exponential Fitness. And then after that, I was looking for home and I found Sola and just absolutely fell in love with that brand. And we built the Radiance platform around that. It was my first time really feeling like a founder and uh, stood mm -hmm. up that platform, acquired the Woodhouse Spas and set that brand up to what it is today, which is pretty amazing. We sold it last year. Um, and uh, my exit at the sale, you know, after the sale is, uh, has been a, a big change for me, but I'm really looking at what's next. But I, I feel like all of these choices and changes have really kind of <sighs> Got me to where I am, but probably making that decision to brave up and, and go back and get my MBA was the biggest one. Christina, you have an incredible success story, an incredible journey. I feel so honored that I'm just even spending this time with you. And all right, so I'm going to keep going. You can choose anytime I ask a follow-up question, you can say pass because we've got so much to go through, but I am going to ask you a follow-up question really quick. Is there a first choice that you may need to make now? It's a great question. You know, I, I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what does it look like next? And uh, I still have, I think, so much to offer career-wise. But I also have an eight-year-old daughter. And uh, I've, I've looked at this as an opportunity really to spend more time with her. And so the real choice for me in terms of what's next is, Am I unemployed? Am I retired? Mm -hmm. Am I looking for something in my retirement? And so I uh, I laugh because I, I struggle with what to put on LinkedIn and I put- Oh, I love what you put on LinkedIn. Oh, changed my mind. <laughs> so right. we'll see where that all heads, but it's been, a, it's been a, an incredible journey. And I think uh, if the right thing came along, I would probably dive back in, but I just don't know how soon. <laughs> yeah. The second critical choice I made was to commit to a two-way agreement. And at that time, I was 20, and it was a near contractual agreement between me and my sister and her husband. They had taken me into their home in Colleen, Texas. So wow. we'll we'll dive there later in Colleen, Texas. You you and I one on one. Now, when I think about a two way agreement, we each enter into two way agreements informally or formally all of the time. It's all around us. Two people are two entities. What I experienced is committing to the agreement is the power. And for me, actions that started from, I have to do these things transformed to, I want to do these things. Yeah. As young leaders follow you and watch you and want to be you, I'm curious about a two-way agreement that you've entered into. What was it? And what did you perhaps give and get through that commitment. You know, the, this was a tough one for me when you, when you mentioned this would be on the list of questions, but the one that I think I came back to again and again, and I thought, I don't, I don't know how to quite articulate it, but I would say that it's my marriage. Like, like so many children of Gen X, I think marriage was something that was very broken in, in Gen X. And there's a lot of divorce, a lot of multiple mm -hmm. divorce. My mom was married and, and divorced twice. Um, my uh, other family members have gone through similar things. And when I met my husband, I had already had, I, I was divorced. I got married when I was 18 and divorced. Oops, sorry. Yes. Yeah, so very young. 
yeah, married when I was 18 to my high school sweetheart, divorced when I was 23. Very Mm -hmm. amicable divorce. We got divorced in a corner booth in a Denny's for 50 bucks. That's what happened. (laughs) We didn't have property. It was relatively easy. Yeah. I just felt like such a failure after going through that. And, you know, I I just thought, oh, gosh, I'm never going to make this mistake again. And so getting into the relationship with my husband, my now husband, um, was a little scary for me. So we started dating and I told him, I said, I'm not marriage material. Um, so if you're looking for marriage, we probably should date and you should move on. But it, we ended up staying together and we didn't actually get married for 13 years, 13 years. So we called ourselves married and people thought of us as married. We owned wow. locations and a house together. And in every common law way, we were married, but we had never made the real commitment, not because of him, but because of me. And I was afraid of what does that really mean? And how does it look to fail again? And what I started realizing is very much like your question. There were a lot of things that you have to put up with, with a partner. You have to do that. And what started to dawn on me was that if you're going to make a marriage work, you have to love the person warts and all. You have to love the person unconditionally. And you have to expect that from them. And when I started realizing that I wanted to do that, I wanted to see him for who he really was and not expect him to be who I had this fantasy of someone supposedly being, it helped tremendously to to make that admittance to myself that I'm not perfect either, that no one's perfect in a relationship and that I really want to have that person that I live my life with. And so we finally got married when I turned 40. That was the year we got married. And so it's that we celebrate two anniversaries now. So I got my MBA and we got married the same year, which was 2010. But we always celebrate the anniversary of our first date as our real anniversary because it's we've been together for so, so long. But I think that commitment is something that for for this generation, you see it's it's gotten harder, like like marriage mm-hmm. seems to be out of vogue. But I can honestly mm-hmm. say that of all of the achievements in my life, I think having a successful marriage is one that I celebrate the most because it was unusual in my family and to make that commitment to somebody and really let them see me who I authentically am and to accept them for who they authentically are was a big deal. It's a beautiful story. It's a perfect example. And I thank you for sharing it with me. Yeah. But then you had a daughter. Yes. And that was a little surprise. Yes. And then, and then because of that later, you had a daughter, which is just beautiful in a whole nother way. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I was one of the, the unexpected, people. the unexpected get from that, from that two-way agreement. There's that saying you plan God laughs. And in this one, it was sort of like the, mm. the conversation was always, it was a sort of a, do you want to have kids? I don't know. Do you want to have kids? I don't know. And then you're in your late thirties and then you're in your early forties and you think these things don't happen anymore. And then boom, one day they happen. And my husband and I both were very shocked and excited about it, but it was, uh, was inconvenient. And this is where, you know, having somebody that, that you really have that relationship with helped yeah. because I was the more career driven and we had since sold our curves. I had been running um, operations for curves and was ready to take that corner office. I got hired. And found out I was pregnant about a month after I got hired. And it was like, holy moly, how am I going to do this? And so my husband and I talked about it. And he said, you know, maybe it's time for me to retire and just become a stay-at-home dad. And so that's what we did. And we weren't really prepared to live on one salary, but it was something that made sense for us. And we were able to do it. And it's been such a blessing because I've been able to continue to do the things that I do and to be, be the breadwinner while he stays home and really is the anchor for her. Now he homeschools her. So it's, it's great. It gives us Which is blessing. awesome. And yeah. it, it's, it's such a great, and I'm, I'm, I am move, I'm going to move us forward to the third choice, but it's such a great example of how two-way agreements evolve as well. Yeah. Yeah, because that agreement between your your husband then shifted and evolved to new understandings and new agreements when all of a sudden you have a daughter. And so there's new dynamic. And and so you adjust and evolve and commit and then continue to grow. Yeah. And it's, it's the thing about the commitment. And that that's what struck me when you and I were talking about this prior, that the commitment piece of that and saying, yes, we are going to do this and we are going to do it until death do us part. Mm-hmm. It took the option of when difficult things happen in relationships and you think, well, I'm just done. It took that option off the table. 
And so instead of being just done, it's sort of, okay, we're partners, what's next? And it makes it a lot more fun once you really have that deep commitment. And I think many people, even in marriages, don't have that commitment. Yeah. It's, it's rare yeah. anymore. But to be able to go through that and so many other things that we've gone through together has been, uh, I, I don't know, just knowing that that question, that book is closed, that choice gave us a new foundation that made it fun. It, it makes those challenges, things that you can laugh at because you know you have someone to go through it with. Yeah. The third critical choice I made was to build trust. Now, for me, that began with needing to build trust in myself. And then that evolved to inspiring the trust of others. Has, well, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask you anyways, <laughs> and then ask you to share if you want to share an example, but has there been a time in which you had to build trust in yourself? And then how did you do it? Um, every single day. <laughs> I, I actually talk a lot um, to my teams in the companies mm. that I run about imposter syndrome. And that's where I would place this is, is that, that feeling of like, what the hell am I doing? Like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And I, I think it's something that you, you start to realize that the trust is that everything is going to be okay. And that there's as much risk in not taking risk as there is in taking risk. Like it's all risk ultimately. So I could have taken the risk of just staying in a career that I loved, science writing, and not gone into entrepreneurship. And I probably would have been fine taking that risk, but it still was a risk that I was going to have to make and I was going to have to trust that decision. But when you're second guessing yourself constantly, it's like you, you lose the enjoyment of life. And so what, I, what I've told people, you know, I've learned in all of this is you never actually feel comfortable. And as soon as you do, you're probably ready to do something new. It's that discomfort that drives your career forward, drives your life forward. It helps you to grow as an individual. And you want to always feel that little bit of discomfort. I, I heard a speaker once who talked about it, stress, as eustress, which is positive stress, is the going up the hill of the roller coaster and the exhilarated feeling of anticipating the downhill. And that distress is when you're in crisis. So distress is a sign that something needs to change, but you stress that feeling of like public speaking for some people having to get up in front yeah. of a crowd, like that kind of a stress can actually be a very productive stress that pushes you forward. And so you're always looking for that exhilarating stress. And part of that is that you're going to feel like you don't know what you're doing because you don't, because you're doing things that it's the first time you're doing them. It's, it's a good thing. And I, I think probably what helped me more than anything in this is having good mentors around me and finding them. Like they don't just come to you. I mean, what, what's the old saying that the teacher appears when the student is ready? Yes. Make yourself ready to have that person give you the kick that you need to take the risk. And I, I found really female, largely mentors along the way some really good male mentors as well. But the women in it were the ones that I could really relate to. And who would say to me, like, well, what's the harm? Like, give it a shot. So you fail. What's the big deal? Like, just put yourself out there and do it. Yeah. Even getting my MBA, I, I remember calling the program and there was a woman there, Irene Hurst, who I spoke with. And I was thinking it was going to take me a year and a half because I was going to have to go back and do the GRE and all these other things. And she says, no, 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 no. We have an executive MBA program. And it starts this fall. Well, this was July and this fall was August. And I'm like, well, I don't have time to take the, the GRE and all of that. Like, I, I, I'm like panicking, like, oh, my God, like in a month, like, I don't know if I can do this. I thought I had a long time to think about it. And she's like, you don't have to do that. You just have to commit. And if you if you want this, mm. I'll board. they're constantly seeking experienced female executives. I think that they would accept you into the program. And so she put my name in the hat and within about, you know, 60 days, I was working on my MBA. But without wow. another woman sitting there on the phone saying, no, you can do this. You're a great fit for this. I wouldn't have had that, that, that ability to get over that panic because that's what it feels like. It's like panic. I've got to trust that this is the right thing to do. But you need that person that will tell you, yes, this is the right thing to do. So I've been very blessed to have that. But I, I always seek that when I'm, when I'm uncertain, I'll reach out to a good friend or a mentor. And how, uh, I'm going to flip the question a, a little bit, especially as you, 
you are an executive leading so many people. How do people inspire your trust? Yeah, you know, I, I think the thing that inspires my trust is probably a combination of curiosity and courage. So if I see someone who's really curious about something and they're asking a lot of questions about it and they're, they're exploring it on their own, they're, they're feeling it out, whether it's a younger executive that wants or a younger employee that wants to move up in leadership and, and get into, you know, more executive level leadership, or if it's, you know, even my daughter, you know, when, when she's asking about something and I know she's serious about it, if she's curious enough and she seems to have courage about it, it's like, sure, let's try that. Let's see how that goes. But I think you have to have that combination. I, I've, I've tried to mentor people before that are lacking one or the other. And if they're not curious, what they're doing is they're waiting for you to write a prescription for them. And that's not really how it works. Like you have to be seeking your own prescription. And if they don't have courage, they're writing their own prescription but then they're too afraid to do it. And what you get is a lot of excuses about why, about why it's not the right time. That could have been me. With my MBA, I was so tempted to say, thank you, Irene. I'll do it next year. Like, like let's do it next that's year. The, that's the easiest, yeah. right? That would have been the easiest. Buy myself some time. But what she was saying is, hey, there's no time like now. The, the opportunity is there. Why wait another year? And she's putting that courage into me. And taking that leap and my husband believing in me, having the faith that like, yeah, I'm going to go spend a lot of money to get an MBA as a gamble that may or may not pay off career-wise. And fortunately mm -hmm. it did, but it's, you just have to, you have to have that sort of curiosity and courage. And I think he saw that in me and said, you're not going to fail if you've got that, go for it, you know? So got to find that in yourself. Uh, I can't wait just to take even this little chapter and this little clip and share it with some of the some of the teams that I work with and 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 coach. I, I love your curiosity and courage. And some of the conversations end up being, it, it, is that are those innate characteristics that I'm born with, or are those things that I can, uh, are those skills and behaviors that I can create and hone and et cetera? And you know, some people fall on one side or the other in their belief. I kind of think that you can skill up to it. You, you, you can enhance those behaviors. I mean, what, what, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. I, you, you tr never, when you're trying to mentor someone in the same way that when people mentored me, the best mentors that I've had are people that are just, they're not answering the questions for me. They're just hmm. keeping me focused on the questions. They're keeping me focused there and, and driving me there to help me figure out the answers to those questions and to take the next steps. And I've tried to do that for people and you try to do it without judgment. And sometimes in the back of your mind, you're thinking, oh, this person's never gonna do it. They're never gonna mm -hmm. do it. Sometimes you're right because you can hear in the way that they talk about themselves or they talk about the problem that there's almost a despair in it. Like, like they feel like, oh God, I've tried and I failed and I'm old. Like that's a big thing with women. Oh. We think we're old. Like by the age 28, we think we're too old to do everything. And it's like, I can tell you, knowing what I know now, if I wanted to go back and get my MBA now, I'd go back. You could. I, I yeah. was 40 when I graduated and I was not the youngest person in that class or the oldest person in that class. So it's, it's one where it's interesting. We all have this mindset, but but you, you see how they think and how they talk and you think, oh, this person's never going to do it. But I've had a few surprise me because I've talked to people about my story about going back to get my MBA. And there's a moment in executive growth where you can get there without the degree, but it's a big um, barrier. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes you get to that moment in your career and you have to make that decision to go back and, and scale up your education to be able to get you into the seat. And I've had this conversation with a, a number of executives um, who have come and asked me, do you think it's worth it for me? Do you think I'll ever make it to the C-suite without it? And I'll tell them, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But I've seen quite a few of them actually make the leap and go back and do it. And there's one in particular that surprised the heck out of me that she did it. So in the conversations that I had with her, I thought, she, she feels too beaten down. She, she's not going to, that courage that has to be the fire inside you. It's like she was holding that little flame and you could just feel that mm -hmm. it's like, I don't want to let it get blown out and fail. But then I follow her career and saw that she went back, started an MBA, finished her MBA, mm -hmm. and now is working as a vice president of a company. 
and just watching her career and seeing what she did, it's inspiring to me because you you know that you feel like maybe I made a difference on that journey. She thanked me. So I, I hope I made a difference on that journey. But ultimately, it was her. It was her courage that got her where she is. And I, I think that's that's the part where, yeah, I do think people can. Awesome. But it, it has to come from inside you. No one's going to pull you up. And mm-hmm. if, you've, if your narrative is that you've been pushed down, get rid of that narrative. There's a thousand million opportunities out there. So if the opportunity you're in is pushing you down, start looking for other opportunities. There's going to be one that the path is open and you can pull yourself up, but you have to be really committed to it. The fourth critical choice I made was to create community and belonging. And oh my gosh, like that is infused in almost everything we're talking about here. When I think about the impact that you've made on others within their community and with the sense of belonging, I want to bring this to you personally. Well, first off, I was 30 years old and, and looked around and I was like, oh, I'm friendly with everyone. I'm friends with no one. It, I still didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. And I learned that in order to belong, I had to actually create it, which I believe it's something that you have to create. It takes action. For you, for you, uh, what I know through this, through our conversation, that there have been times in which you didn't feel like you belonged which I think sometimes is hard for people to to wrap their arms around when they see you and they know you and they hear you. Oh my God, you're everywhere. You speak at conferences, you're on podcasts, you're in boardrooms, like you own the place. Have you felt not belonging? And and what does that feel like? Yeah, I, I felt it a lot. You know, that this was another one. You, you ask tough questions, Trish, I'll just say it. <laughs> Oh my God. Well, I'll take that as a compliment from you because if this has you thinking about things that you normally don't have an opportunity to think about, that's a gift to me. I I mean, I will say as a, as a woman in executive leadership, um, I have a lot of peers that I reach out to and we talk about this, how even still in this day, it's rarefied air. There, there are very mm-hmm. few women in boardrooms. There are very few women executives in companies, um, even in beauty, where you know I was operating in my last role. You go to the beauty events and most of the people sitting on the stages are men. And it's not for lack of trying. They, they all you know, are very committed and you know, we're trying to figure out how to get more women involved and get more women at the executive levels. But for whatever reason, it doesn't happen. And becoming a mom so late in my life Mm -hmm. made me realize that a big part of the reason why is still the priorities and expectations that we set for ourselves as women that are a little different than how men still think about it. And, you know, I'm I'm in sort of a flipped relationship where my husband's the stay-at-home dad. That's becoming more and more common and it's opening up pathways for women. But you're often the only woman and it's like, how do you connect? So you hear like old school guys talking about how uh, in the companies that they ran, what they would do um, after board meetings and things like that. And it's not things that necessarily women are going to want to go and do or that would be comfortable if you're the only woman there. And so there is a a sort of gender piece with this. But even beyond that, I, I will say that executive leadership can be very isolating. So statistically, they say that people marry people they either went to school with or they worked with. And it's because that's where you spend time with them and you can build adaptive relationships. But as you're growing in a career, and particularly when you grow quickly in a career, you get to a point where people are going out socially, but they don't necessarily want their quote unquote boss going with them. And so you have a social sort of stratus in a company that you're you're sort of a tangent to, but you're not necessarily engaged in as deeply. And that's where your, your thing about being friendly with everyone and friends with no one. Hmm. I would say that that hasn't been an unusual position for me to find myself in that, that I will go to breakfast or lunch with any member of my company, any level. I, I love doing it. It's something that I saw my best mentors doing. I was remember Bob Anton from BCA Antech telling me I love skip gap. I didn't even know what it meant. 
But what it meant was he likes to go talk to everyone at the company so that he really understands what people are experiencing and he can Mm -hmm. modify the culture to make sure that that experience is great for everyone. And so it was a really interesting thing to hear at that stage of my career, something that I had strived to do, but that I became more mindful of even so after hearing his very direct comment about it. But what struck me about this is how, as you get older, you realize that the people that are in your life that have fallen away and how you don't necessarily prioritize those relationships. And some of the best relationships that I still have are from all the companies are from Curves, because I think we all we all sort of built that thing together. I was there for 15 years and we're all still Facebook friends. But it made me think, gosh, I need to make a day trip to Waco and go actually see these people face to face. Because right. I haven't done that in so, so long. Even seeing you and Jenny. Um, oh my gosh. You realize you have to make it a priority. But it's one where uh, this one just struck me as I'm not sure I have the definitive answer to this yet. Mm-hmm. So I think you've challenged me a bit here to think about how do I get those true friendships back where maybe I maybe I have let those kinds of things go. But the the belonging part of it, I think, though, it is it is harder. People say it's lonely at the top. There is no top, by the way. Everybody has a boss, no matter, yeah. No matter how. Yeah, right, right. You know that. <laughs> but but it does yeah. get uh, it does get interesting as you as you move up in leadership. How hard it is to really connect with people on a personal level that that is as meaningful to you as it is for mm-hmm. them. Like you can do kind things for them, but they're not necessarily going to want their boss in. You know. Uh, now, how about this? How does it feel to belong? Yeah, yeah. That that is the the thing I think. If I miss anything um, in my career, the moment of belonging that was the most meaningful to me was in the early days of Curves when we were such a big company with so many women. So my my role um, at the conferences, I would always give sort of the operations talk. So you have your your piece that you do there, but then we would do a party at that brand. And because it was all women and it was so large, it would be thousands of women in this big, like a, what do you call it? Like a big conference uh, center. And we would have a yeah. DJ and play the music from our generation and everyone would just dance and dance and dance. And I mean, I would say that, you know, there were, you know, probably a couple thousand women and maybe, uh, you know, 20 wow. guys. <laughs> it was like that kind of a dynamic because they didn't bring their husbands. They brought one another. And we were so connected in this mission of supporting one another and supporting the members and supporting the other franchisees. And it was so genuine and you could just feel that we had something in common that ran very, very deep. And that party was always so fun. And we would run it, <clears throat> we would run it up until the very end. And then my, my job often was to close down the party and I would go tell them, to play. <laughs> we are family was usually the last song. And you'd get up there and tell them to play the song and they would shut down the party. And it's like, I just remember just the feeling of it. Mm-hmm. Of, of, you know, everybody feeling genuinely that there was a family there and there's nothing like it. And I, I think uh, I'm blessed to have my family, to feel belonging there, to feel my husband's family, which is rare to have in-laws where you feel that, but to have that in a company where it was that deep and that genuine, I think is rare. Can I keep you for five more minutes? Oh yeah. Yeah. Are you okay? Absolutely. Do it, do a, do, because I just, I just didn't want to speed up our conversation because it's just so perfectly beautiful. And and the fourth choice and what you shared leads me right into the fifth. The fifth critical choice that I made was to finally realize that I could and then embrace my boundless capacity to give love and to receive love. Yeah. And even just the stories you've shared about family and community and belonging with the Curves family makes me think about this. But I want to take a step back again. When I, a lot of times people will say to me, uh, well, you know, what do you, what do you mean? Like, what's an example of giving love? And I'll say, well, you tell me, (laughs) you know, because giving and receiving love is an action. So that is what I'm talking about, the action, which is a choice. And I think it manifests for different people in different environments and different cultures and and different circumstances. So I don't have the answers. I know how it manifests for me, but I really want to get and explore with you just 
what is your reaction to giving and receiving love? Just the idea of that, especially as a business executive. And then I'm going to ask, what does it feel like when you do, when you do give and you receive? Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because people don't want to talk about emotions like love in business. It's just not something that, uh, it makes people uncomfortable, which is interesting to me. And so when we set up the Radiance platform at the height of COVID, by the way, we did uh, the work around this in the early part of 2020, when COVID was still unknown, we thought there were two weeks to flatten the curve and, you know, the pandemic was not really understood yet. And our businesses were 100% closed. So franchisees were scared. They weren't making any money, but their landlords were still expecting them to pay rent. And we were doing a lot of lobbying work to try to help get them the economic support they needed. But when we set up the core values, the number one value, the, the first value that we put in our list of values was joy. And we were very intentional about choosing that. And I remember one of my executives who was a little more classic, but I love working with him. But he asked me, he goes, are you sure that that's what we want to do? Are you sure that that's the right way to put it? I mean, I know we feel that, but don't you think people will think that's kind of cheesy? And I, I said, you know, they might. But I think that if you found a culture on joy, what you attract is a lot of people who are hungry for that who who want their life to be joyful and want to bring their joy to the business that they run, even in crisis, because there's always problems in business. And it was that focus on joy that helped us to maintain some levity through a very difficult time, but then really did attract some of the most phenomenal people that I've ever worked with in my career. And building it around that, I think, is a form of love. It's a way of giving love to people who give so much of themselves to their careers and to the work that they do. And I think more employers need to think about that. Like, how do we allow that very human need to be something that's on our list of things that we fulfill? I mean, yes, we, we pay fairly. That's a great quality to have. We yes, absolutely. Right how we treat people and how we prioritize their families and how we try to understand their growth and their needs and what they want. That to me is a way of giving love to people. And when you do that, what you get back from that is a lot of, I think, uh, loyalty, but joy that they then bring to the customers that you're trying to serve that helps the business to grow. And I, I think in the years that I was there, that is what really helped the company to flourish. And it's one where, I don't know, I don't, I, I think about all of the leaders out there, the Brene Browns and the Simon Sinek's and all the folks that talk about, you know, the why and really getting to the deeper side of the, the human piece of business, that movement needs to grow. And I think that love needs to be shown, but I, but I think it, it, it's both personal and professional. And I think opening it up in business helps people to prioritize it personally. And to me, that feels really good. I, I said to someone when we were going through our deal last year, it was intense um, selling a company in, in 2022 when we did it. And I said to someone, you know, success looks like a lot of money, but it looks like a lot of money and we're all still married. So we need to mm -hmm. prioritize and spend time with our families, even though there's a lot going on right now. And I think it's it's taking that tack that that gives it a richness that makes it even more valuable than the economics. And uh, I shared a selfie with you when I think I sent it to you. Jenny and I were talking about this uh, when we were prepping uh, Abby and she's OK if I use her name. She's a Sola studio Oh, owner. Yeah. I don't even know if you call it, I don't even, I don't even know if you call it an owner. You know, but yeah. 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 So she's my stylist. I have been with her for 10 years. She has been on this journey with me. I have been on her journey. Yeah. She is absolutely 100% the person when I say I want to inspire younger women to create, to believe they can, and then create their own enduring success. Abigail Rosada is literally the picture in my head. So she's amazing. And a huge, huge success factor for her is when she went out on her own and created her own studio within Sola. And I will tell you, joy and love would 100% be what she gravitated to. 
what yeah. she gravitated to for her world and life. And, you know, in, in, in the end, that is a client of someone who the franchisee, you know, serves. So anyways, full circle, I totally believe and embrace joy. A hundred percent. Yeah. And it's, it, it, that, that is just an example of how giving back and giving back and giving back builds success. So you think about mm-hmm. you know what franchising did for me was bust the glass ceiling. Like I I would have yes. been at the glass ceiling, but having something that let me follow my bliss and find ways to give back in companies that I just love. And then you look at companies that are finding ways to do that. And Sola is a great example of it, where their real mission is helping these beauty professionals to realize the lives of their dreams. What, what an amazing mission. And many of yeah. them said, the franchisees would say to me, why I love this business is it lets me do for these hairstylists what franchising has done for me. It, it gives them optionality and freedom. Yeah. And what they want, that freedom that they're seeking is fundamentally, I think, what we're all seeking in life. We want the ability to sort of define our own, our own success and you know, what does that look like? For some of them, it's an economic goal. For others, they're later in their careers and it's about freeing mm-hmm. up their time so that they can spend more time with their families and kids and work on their own schedules. For some, it's the ability to curate their clients so that they can you know, sort of filter out negativity and surround themselves with other positive people. And what better microcosm for what we're all trying to achieve than that? So I, I love that example, Trish. I really do. It's a brand that will always hold, hold a very special place in my heart. Yeah. And you and you led the way. And Christina, just first off, thank you for choosing to give me your love. How about that? Oh, in investing your time, in thinking about the questions, in providing your perspective and your stories. Like to me, that is a manifestation of love, and I receive it wholeheartedly. And and thank you for embracing the love that I wanted to give to you. You know, in this time together, I think you are remarkable. You're remarkable, and I can't wait to see who changes your mind. <laughs> I'm on sabbatical. Change my mind. That's great. Yeah, well, Trish, I, I think the work you're doing is amazing. So congratulations to you on what you're doing here. And it's my honor, really, to be on this. So thank you. Thank you. And thanks for making this work before you go on your girls trip. Because I yeah. think you are heading out on a much needed trip with your community. Yeah, I am. Yeah, my best friend of 30 something years, you lose track after a while, but you talk about, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of enduring friendship and people that you deeply have. I, I have a handful of friends that I've had my entire life. And, and this is someone that uh, is good to spend time with. So I'm excited. Wonderful. Everyone, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Choose and Become interview series with Christina Russell. You'll, you'll know how to find her, but I'll put it in there anyways. Thank you for being along this journey. And remember, you have the power to create enduring success and to fuel the success of those around you. Choose and become. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Choose and Become interview series. To check out more episodes, go to www.trishkendall.com backslash podcast. Or go to any of your favorite podcast channels, including YouTube, under Trish Kendall Speaks, and you'll find this interview and more. Choose and become.